I want to thank you so much for joining us today. It is an incredible honor and pleasure. We are going to get into some really good content today. And I just want to say thank you for so consistently supporting the ministry. Again, this is something that God has called me into. And I thank you for joining me and what he wants to do. And so without further ado, I want to introduce our speaker today uh, who's joining us, Sean St. John. Sean has been a social worker and counselor in private practice for the past 12 years. He holds both a bachelor's and clinical master's degree in social work from UBC, as well as a PhD in social work and sociology. His research focus on vicarious trauma and burnout among helping professionals. His research focus is on vicarious trauma and burnout among helping professionals. Sean has worked in child welfare as a child protection worker and then as a family preservation counselor. He also worked as a mental health case manager with WorkSafe BC adjudicating occupational mental health claims. Currently, he teaches graduate level social work and is the director of the Masters of Social Work Field Education and assistant, and also is an assistant at prof, uh, professor at King University in Tennessee. In his counseling practice, Sean works with individuals struggling with anxiety and depression, post-traumatic and occupation stress, burnout, and relationship issues using cognitive, psychodynamic, and faith-based approaches. Sean has been a disciple of Jesus since 96, and he lives with his wife, Erin, and their three children in Vancouver, Canada. Sean, welcome to the channel, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. That that was a mouthful. There was some <laughs> uh, gymnastics there to get through that. You've done a lot, and that's uh, that's why I'm excited about having you on today. First, tell us a little bit about your conversion, and then why did you decide to go into research? Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's a lot that happened between my conversion and going to research. Um, baptized in '96 uh, in the campus ministry, uh, grew up kind of uh, going to church you know, off and on. Uh, I was definitely, I, I became an atheist at one point. I was very disillusioned with the church. Um, I saw a lot of hypocrisy and, uh, and it's weird. And my, my, my family's fairly liberal. I actually oddly rebelled against them by becoming a disciple. You know, some people go the other way, you know, they stop going to church and they start listening to like heavy metal music and doing, you know, crazy stuff. But I actually became kind of straight laced and uh, freaked them all out. So, um, yeah, so yeah, baptized in Vancouver. Um, it was a, a great experience. Uh, we had this really tight knit campus ministry. I was like uh, one of two white people in the campus ministry. Like, so for me, church was like this totally revolutionary thing and uh, totally changed my worldview. And, um, and it was great and I loved it. And I think what got me into uh, social work was I, you know, I had been doing all this stuff, studying the Bible with lots of people. And I remember walking down the street with his brother one time. I was his, his discipler. And uh, he, was, he was really having a rough go. Like he, he was struggling with depression. And, and I had no idea what that meant. And I remember at one point he turned to me and he, he said, you know, Sean, I don't, I don't want to sound prideful, but I just don't think you're qualified to help me. And I do remember that, that feeling of anger that came up for me, like, yeah, maybe you, maybe you are prideful. But then as I kind of thought about it, I realized, you know, I'm really not, 
qualified. And I mean, looking back now, I realize, I mean, this guy probably would have met the conditions for major depressive disorder. He probably needed professional intervention and, uh, and I wasn't really able to help him. So that, that pushed me, that pushed me to, to go back to school, to finish my degree. And, uh, and I got into social work because it felt really congruent with our, our family of churches. It's very boots on the ground. It's not fancy. It sort of gets the job done. Um, and that seemed to really match my, my worldview, my, my faith. So went into social work, um, became a child protection worker, uh, which is like crazy. It's, it's this really insane field where you see and do things that you never thought you would do. Um, and, you know, they say, there's a saying that research is me search. So I actually think that the reason I, I went back for my PhD was because I was burned out. I was struggling with various kinds of trauma based on, based on my work. Um, there was, uh, you know, this kind of parade of social workers coming into my office, you know, one by one saying, look, I'm, I'm struggling. And they, they'd be in tears. They would, they'd start so idealistically and they'd come in with this passion to help people. And within like a few months, maybe a year, they would be um, totally burned out. They would be disillusioned. They would be uh, really, they'd be ready to throw in the towel. And meanwhile, they just finished like a four-year degree program. They put their whole life into this thing. And now they were, they were done. And the, you know, they say that the average lifespan of a child protection worker is about 14 months on average, depending on the research. So they don't have a long shelf life. And, uh, and if you look at the, um, the, the sort of the psychological and emotional damage that happens, it's quite high. Uh, there's, there's other research that suggests that up to 70% of child protection workers have at least one major symptom of PTSD. And 34% uh, are actually diagnosable with full-blown PTSD, which is, uh, which is pretty brutal. Um, if you consider that if you have like true PTSD, like diagnosed PTSD, there's a 50% chance you're going to take those symptoms to the very end of your life. So what that means is that if you go, if you become a child protection worker, there is about a 15% chance that you will incur permanent psychological damage just because you entered the profession and it's like you know how many jobs would we you know like if you were at a job interview the hiring manager you know is taking you around the the plant and and uh, you're seeing like 70 percent of the workers have like bandages on their arms and 15 percent of the workers are missing an arm you know at some point you might say like uh like what's with what's with the arms and if he told you, well, actually, if you work here, there's a 15% chance you're going to lose your left arm just because it's such a dangerous occupation. How many of us would take that job? Like, I think very few of us, I think most of us would walk out the door. But when it comes to mental health, we, we tend not to see it that way. Like, we don't know what we're getting into. And sometimes we, we can get into these high stress occupations that uh, we, we have no idea yet what, what's going to happen, but they can be very damaging. So I thought, hey, let's, let's swim upstream, you know, and uh, I, I had this experience where, you know, um, I'd been asked to be in a meeting with this father who had had his uh, children removed because of 
violence and um, alcohol use. And, uh, and I remember I, it was me and this other social worker named Pat and Pat was amazing. I think they brought me in cause I'm like a bigger guy, not because of like my clinical skills, but you know, I was like the muscle. Um, and I remember he was so mad. Like he was, he was really angry and he was super escalated. And I watched Pat sort of move in. It's almost like a boxer, you know, sort of bobbing and weaving with him. And she was like making these little jokes and I'm sitting there going, why, why are you joking? Like, like, what are you, what are you doing? And, but I watched over the course of about five or six minutes, she just sort of solved him and unlocked him and was able to de-escalate him completely to the point where he was laughing. He was, and he was on, he, you know, he was fine with the plan moving forward. And I remember he, he left and I was like, Pat, like, what was that? Like, that was like a masterful performance. How, like, where did you pick up those skills? And it was truly something to behold. I wish I could have recorded it. And she said, well, I was one of seven children growing up. My father was a raging alcoholic and I was the only one who could keep him from totally losing it and hurting all of us. I was the only one. And so they'd send me in because I could calm him down. And so she wasn't drawing on her skills as a social worker. She was drawing on her own childhood history. And it was, it was like the superpower she had. But connected to that is the fact that this, this is the, the other piece is that she took the next two, three days off. Um, she took sick days. She didn't come in the next day because it also took a toll. So that thing that was her, her superpower was also her kryptonite. It also really, it, it took a toll on her psychologically. And so that made me really curious. So I started researching, you know, what, what is it about, um, you know, social workers' early childhood trauma that makes them really well suited to the role of, a, of being a child protection worker, but also how does that um, plant seeds of their own destruction? Um, and, and I did find both in the research. So at the end of the day, I just want to help people and uh, provide a bit of, um, you know, a few tools uh, and some insight for those choosing, choosing that field. So that's, that's kind of the, the long version of that story. Love it. I, I, there's so many things. In fact, just for our audience, uh, I, I met, I've met you, I met you within the last few months. And I remember our first conversation, uh, you had mentioned your research and uh, I hadn't taken a look at it yet. And I remember when we talked about it and I was, I was, you didn't know this, but I was crawling in my skin that day because I was personally triggered again, burnout versus triggered. There's this murkiness, right? Yeah. And so sometimes when we think we're burned out, which your research will, we'll talk about in a moment. Anyway, when we had talked, I felt better mm. <laughs> because you helped to name part of what, uh, I mean, relationship is a contact sport. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. you kind of named, in a, in a very just short period of time, that aspect of when you give and you pour yourself out, whether it be in a ministerial sense, whether it be whatever mm -hmm. occupational, professional, familial, relational sense, when you pour yourself out, depending on how you pour in the context, there's an expenditure. Mm -hmm. And we were human. We're more human than we think. So I just, I love that idea of just naming. I find that for a lot of my audience, they're, they're in the process of naming. Mm -hmm. Things it felt for so long, but for the first time, there's words mm -hmm. for it. 
And that's when the healing can begin, typically when the naming starts. So right. just thank you so much for that. That's so helpful. Yeah. Well, and there's this idea that what, once we can name something, that we take it out of the, the realm of the somatic, you know, like it stops living in our body so much and it, it, it goes into our brain. And once we can tell a story about it, that's really a huge step toward healing that, that trauma. Because so often we, uh, we get triggered and we don't even know, we don't even realize. We, all we know is that we're feeling something really powerful. And, and, and that feeling is, is, it's moving us to do something or to not do something. We may not have insight as to why that feeling's coming up for us. So once, once we can move that into this more cognitive place where we can add it to our story, uh, it just, it totally changes the game for us because then, then we can start using our prefrontal cortex to deal with that part of our life instead of our limbic system, which is just designed to keep us alive, right? Yeah, so what I wanna do now is I wanna get into yeah. a little bit of the, the, the nitty gritties of your research. I, I yeah. really am excited about what your research shows because I'm in a practice, my, the, my colleagues and I, we're in a mix of, we've got folks who are, have their PhDs in psychology, I'm the only yeah. marriage and family therapist at LMFT here, but we have social workers and then we have LPCs. But every single one of us, because we are so saturated in, in this work of trauma, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. all of us have, yeah, we've taken some, we've taken, a, it's taken a toll. Yeah. I mean, it really has. And, 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 and this isn't just something that's helpful for, for, for professionals. Your research, I feel like has implications that extend to the everyday person. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to kind of have you just kind of unpack that for us now. Yeah, for sure. So I, I interviewed a number of child protection workers um, and every single one of them had a history of uh, childhood abuse or neglect. Um, almost half of them had experienced some sort of childhood sexual abuse. Um, there was physical abuse. There was all, all kinds of stuff happening. Um, and in fact, when you look at people that go into the helping professions, there tends to be, um, you know, high ACE scores. There tends to be, you know, a lot of a lot a lot of stuff that went down. And I sort of suspected that one of the reasons why some people even get into a helping profession is because they're actually trying to make sense of or redeem that thing that happened to them. They're trying to give meaning to it, and they're trying to make it all worth worth it somehow, um, which is you know great and um can can put up some real uh, stumbling blocks because sometimes when we when we have this trauma background there can be this minefield that we don't even know exists and so what i wanted to do is i just wanted to interview social workers about their childhoods about some of the things that happened to them and then sort of juxtapose that with the things that really stress them out at work and what I found was that there was almost a hand-in-glove relationship between the things that those workers experienced and the things that really stressed them out. Um, of course, for social workers, there's lots of paperwork, high caseloads. You know, it's a high-stress environment. It's sort of a no-win environment, especially in child protections. It's, um, you know, if, if you remove the children, you're criticized for having done that. Like, oh, maybe you should have left them there. If you, uh, if you don't bring children into care, you're criticized. Well, why didn't you help them? Um, and then on top of that, there's confidentiality. So all these other people can tell your narrative, but you're actually not allowed to explain your side of the story. So it represents this kind of double bind. But 
what, what I found was that, you know, we had, um, we had this, this one person who she, um, she was really triggered by um, what she framed as narcissistic mothers. And uh, she, what she said is that she would break law and policy to remove children from a home of a narcissistic mother, even if, even if the law didn't warrant it, because she knew she was convinced of the harm that would be done to them. Of course, when we dug into her history, we found, yeah, I mean, that, that was her experience. Um, she, she, that's the, she had a narcissistic mother. And so she, had to, she could relate in this way. Uh, but it also meant that she had a trigger and a trigger is just kind of like a memory fragment that, that comes up. Um, and so what happens when we're triggered is we sort of stop being in the present moment in the present relationship and we time travel back to that place. Um, you know, when maybe we were helpless, when maybe we were really in trouble and we stop seeing reality as it is like objectively. And then we start taking action as though we were back there and not right here. And so that's why she said she would break the law to remove children. Um, I had a, another, another participant who um, she, had, uh, she had been uh, sexually abused by an uncle who is also a pastor. And her, the, the brutal thing was, was actually that when she went to her parents and disclosed to her parents, they, they, they minimized it and they brushed, they brushed it off. And she was so disillusioned that she ran away from home. She was 16. She lived on the streets. She started using substances. Eventually she cleaned up her life and was able to go back to school. But her major trigger is when she's working with parents that don't get it. That's her trigger. So if she feels like she's talking with a parent that's just not believing their child, not, not seeking to understand, she just really has a hard time controlling herself and controlling her reaction um, and so we can sort of see there's a direct correlation between the thing that happened and and then that thing that bears resemblance to what happened um, and then the other the other big point is just that you know we use this catch-all term burnout um, and but it's shorthand for like a basket of things it's it's it, it could be it could be about a dozen different things that we just label as burnout. Maybe it is trauma. Um, maybe it's maybe it's grief. Maybe it's um, you know maybe it's moral injury. That's that's another thing, especially for child protection workers. And I think it may have a application to to our family of churches as well. You know, we have uh, military vets who come back and they've done things. They've not just seen things, but they've done things that they feel deeply about. They feel this deep sense of woundedness and shame, and they don't know where to go with it. You know, like, what happens if you've done something? Hey, we're, you know, acting on behalf of your country, you know, it was, it was legal, but you just happen to enjoy it. Like, where do you go with that? You know, that creates these complex emotions. And so, you know, when, when we're talking about it, we tended to say I'm burned out, but it might be, so many different things. So I really wanted to shed some light on what some of those things might have, might have been. Help us to understand a little bit more regarding how someone who is listening to this, and let's say they're not a child protection worker and they yeah. don't have the history of that. And, and I, I'll just say full disclosure, I worked, <laughs> oh man, I, I worked 
uh, you know, as a therapeutic case manager, helping kids to be reintegrated back into homes. And then yeah. I worked as an in-home intensive therapist, helping Thanks. kids who had been reintegrated to stay in the home. And everything you're saying has so many, oh man, I've also worked in substance abuse with kids who had their, you know, parents who had their kids taken and, and it, it's just mm -hmm. trauma 360, literally. And, yeah. and like you said, that sometimes there's, there isn't really a win-win. Um, anyway, as far as people, they're different experiences. They're, you know, they have different things they've had to attend to. How does this apply to, to, to people and fellowships? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, um, most people are fighting a battle you know nothing about. Mm. It's easy to, it's easy to judge people's behaviors, um, when we have no idea what's going on for them, frankly. Or maybe we, maybe we knew the them from 20 years ago and we have this story running in our head about who we think they are. And actually they haven't been that person. Actually, they were never that person. They certainly haven't been that person for the last 20 years. Um, and yet maybe we, we sort of avoid them in the fellowship because we think we know who they are and what they believe and what they do, what they're like. Um, and we don't know anything. <laughs> That's what I'm learning. As I get older as a, as a Christian, I'm realizing, man, I, I, I know so much less than I think I know. Um, and I, I think there's a huge parallel, actually, between um, the ICOC and protection workers. You know, there is this sort of, I can get this done attitude um, in our family of churches. And when we were being successful and like growing and baptizing and, you know, like spreading like a weed, it's like nothing succeeds like success, right? It was sort of like, look at what we're producing. And, uh, and but with that came this sort of, you know, mentality, I'm not a victim. I'm not, you know, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be a victim. And, uh, we're, you know, we're the, there's a strong group identity. We're the people that get it done. We get the job done. We go there. We, we talk, we talk about this stuff with people. And, and it's such a tough thing because the, 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 the wonderful things um, and the exciting things and those deeply meaningful things from our past are so interwoven with the um, abusive things and the traumatizing things it's really hard to tease those apart. Um, and, and, and I think the struggle is the same for child protection workers. You know, it's like you're, you're, you're standing in the gap. You're doing really important work. It's also damaging you. <laughs> and so it, the idea of like, well, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe, or maybe I should do this differently. It's so threatening to our identity that we'd rather just be damaged. We'd rather just die on that hill then make some shifts, right? And this is the, you know, we, we, we conducted this research with ICUC ministers in 2019, right before the pandemic hit. And what it, what it showed was that 53% of our, our ministry staff had moderate levels of burnout, but also showed that more, more than 50% more than had what's called high uh, compassion satisfaction. So what that means is that our, our ICUC ministers they, they were generally feeling burned out in ministry and they found it deeply rewarding because those things really go together. And wow. there's this, um, there's this thing called avatar syndrome. I, I don't know if you've heard of that, but you know, when, when the movie avatar came out, 
um, people would like look at a sunset or walk in the woods and they'd be like, meh, you know, like the colors just seem dull because they just watched this 3D computer generated movie with these brilliant colors. And it was like, not just nature, it was like this hyper real version of nature. And then everything else just seemed kind of dull in comparison. And I think that happens for child protection workers that leave that field. Everything else is like, meh. And I think that happens for people in ministry too. You know, it's like, you know, how do you go to selling real estate after you've been saving souls for Christ? You know, <laughs> it just doesn't, you know, it doesn't have that eternal superhero kind of uh, feeling to it. And I think some of us have had to wrestle with that. And uh, there's been a real, um, you know, I, I remember talking to this brother once and he just said, I just feel like I'm mourning the death of a dream. You know, like we weren't exactly who we thought we were. We weren't destined to do what we said we were going to do. You know, like all of these, all of these uh, ambitions were kind of naive. And we were so young, you know. Um, and it's, I've been thinking about this a lot, but it, it's like, our experience in, in our family of churches just happens to mirror our experience of life. Like we're all moving through life together. You know, most of us were baptized in ministry, some of us in team ministry, and then we all just sort of got married at the same time and had kids at the same time. And we're, we're living life together. We're kind of moving along the conveyor belt of life. And, um, and so there's a lot of congruence between the things we're experiencing and, um, and what, what I've realized is that we were just young, you know, we were just so young and we didn't, we didn't know. And, um, I've been thinking about, about Moses a lot and, uh, I feel like I'm monologuing at you at this point, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, Dude, I, I'm just I, 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 I honestly, I'm just enjoying it. I feel okay, ministered good. to, and, uh, I, I, sometimes I just like to listen. <laughs> okay. I, I get uncomfortable if I hear myself talking too long. Um, I start wondering, huh, like what's because I'm a counselor, right? So I, yep. I should not be doing mo most of the talking in any In sort this of moment, diet, you right? get to. Yes, I have the stage. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I think about Moses. And what always struck me about Moses was these two ways that he's characterized. Um, you know, I think it was Paul that said that he was powerful in speech when he refers back to Moses in the New Testament. But then, you know, Moses says to God, well, I'm slow in speech and tongue, right? He's like, I'm not, I'm not very well spoken. And like, why, why that disconnect? So I sort of tracked his life and I realized, oh, like, so he, he grew up very privileged. Um, he had these like convictions, like I, I, I want to save my people. I want to save the Hebrew nation. And he kind of came out of the gate swinging, you know, like very first thing he does is he, he murders an Egyptian. Like that's the very first thing he does. Second thing he does is he like tries to become this mediator, you know, between two uh, Israelites who are fighting. And it's like, do you even get Israelite culture? Like you grew up in a palace, you know, like you don't know anything, but you, you know enough to be dangerous. That's the problem. You, you've got a few skills. You've got a few convictions. You've got this righteous anger. And what has that resulted in? You murdering someone and you basically getting into this argument that you know nothing about. And so then like God leads him 
out to Midian, right? Takes them to the desert to tend sheep for 40 years. He just like chills that guy out for 40 years. He totally does. <laughs> right? Like that's going to change you. You know, you may be fast talking and have all the answers. Try 40 years in a desert with sheep. With a culture that's not yours. Like, you've got nothing to say. Probably don't speak the language very well. Like, that gives, there's, there's some reflection time there. And so then at the age of 80, he's finally, God's like, okay, I think you're ready. At 80, you know? And it just made me think for, for us, like, it, it, I think it, it's felt discouraging. You know, the letter came out and things seem to be falling, but this is grace. This is God's discipline. This is the, this is a measured hand of discipline from God. This is God loving us. You know, when we're having to fight through difficult marriages and raising kids and, and uh, kids that are just like we were. And it's like, Oh gosh, like, okay. I, I think I'm starting to get it. You know, the, these are all preparation for what's to come. And, uh, you know, like you look at the, the qualifications for elders, they've all been ground down by life. They've all had stuff happen to them. They've been a lot of different contexts. They've, they've had to learn to look at life in a nuanced way. Um, it's something they could have never had in their early 20s. Now we, we, love, we love people who are fired up in their early 20s. They've got this passion for God. And, you know, like I think, I think it was Paul that said, you know, like I speak to you young men because you've escaped the evil one. That's a huge victory. That's to be celebrated, but it's not the end. And I think that, at least for me, when I, you know, as this 18-year-old disciple, I thought it was the end. I thought I'd reached this pinnacle of spirituality because I was perfectly obeying the Bible. And I'm, I'm like the first person to fully understand scripture as God intended it, you know, and to be perfectly living it out, you know, it's like. That's so funny. It's a little bit embarrassing, but it's, I just love that God is gracious and he's working with us. And, um, and I, I think the best really is yet, yet to come. Thank you for saying that, because I think some people, it's kind of like fake it till you make it or act <laughs> as if we start to try to manufacture perseverance. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I think sometimes we just, it's kind of like when you have an athlete who gets injured. I mean, that's the one thing that, that stops the train is that you get, you get injured. And, and what I have found is kind of interesting like I tore my Achilles uh, three or four years ago. Stupid. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I thought I was younger than I, I really am. And so when I got when I got injured, when it was time to do rehab, I, I could go back. And then what I wanted to do <laughs> is I wanted to hit the weights and I wanted to I wanted to I wanted to build the big muscles. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I had this little calf and it still it still needs work. Anyway, I have this little calf and, and when I go to the gym, again, I want to work the big muscles, but I need to do rehab. And what I realized that I was kind of struggling with is that I'm a little bit more accepting of being weak than being injured. Weak <laughs> versus being wounded. Right. And so I want right. to work the big muscles versus do rehab, which is addressing the injury. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so it's just over time, to your point, we get nicked. And then we need yeah. to do actual rehab emotionally in terms of trauma, in terms of actually building true resilience. And then that's a sign of maturity, 
right? Mm -hmm. Is to actually mm -hmm. do rehab, to do emotional healing to where we don't stay either euthymic. Euthymic is a fancy word for being kind of just this, where we're out of touch. We feel basically from the neck up or yeah. a fancy term would be alexithymic, which is we can't name what we feel, right? right. right. The point is, is that I think some of us, to your point with that grit, the grit theology, mm -hmm. we, and I myself kind of in that way too, because I was raised that way is, is I'm, I can deal with weakness, but what I really can't deal with is being wounded mm. to admit that. And so what I'm hearing you say to some degree is that those who mature are those who are focused on healing at, at a primary level. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think you're right. And I appreciate you saying that. Um, I think you said nicked. I think the young people these days are saying scuffed. Yeah. <laughs> that's what my son says. He's like, dad, that's scuffed. I'm like, okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I love I love what you're saying because I think that when when we're young, most of us don't have to deal with that sense of woundedness. Of course, wounds are crucial. I mean, it's by mm. Christ's wounds we are healed. Absolutely. And uh, I, I remember I used to love studying the Bible with people and you know trying to like paint this new picture of Jesus that wasn't so like lame and you know petting a little lamb and he, <laughs> he was more like a superhero, right? But actually, he's not like a superhero in so many ways. He's very human. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the irony is that Jesus wasn't a martyr. You know, he, uh, hmm. I mean, he died for us, but he wasn't a martyr. He learned how to take care of himself. And I think that's, that's a big piece that was missing with me for a long time. You know, he even when he was talking about loving other people, he said, like, you know, like, uh, no one ever hated his own body. Like, mm -hmm. he just says it sort of almost like a throwaway comment. Like, well, of course, nobody ever hated his own body. You know, he, he feeds and cares for it. But I think we've sort of, a lot of us have been in the habit of not caring for our own bodies, not caring about ourselves, not slowing down, you know. But going back to the scriptures, you, you see how Jesus is, I mean, he's, he's not afraid to sleep on a boat. When everyone else is freaked out you know he doesn't care oh how am i going to come across i'm the leader i'm the leader here i need to be awake and i need to be at the front i need to be steering you know he he didn't care about you know bad pr he often would leave the crowds you know like i want to do a study where all i all i look at is all the times jesus was like rebuked and challenged by his disciples because that's kind of like the way I think in my humanistic ways, you know, like Jesus, like, I don't know if you made all the right decisions when you were walking around on earth, like you could have had so much more of an impact. Like, you know, when Satan offered you all the king kingdoms of the world, think about what you could have done. Like you could have had so much, you could have, you know, you could have saved everyone right there, you know, like, because I'm so smart. I know so much more than Jesus, but it's like, like I know intellectually, yeah, Jesus is right. He's just right. Um, and yet more and more areas of my life, I see I'm just not living like him because I'm actually following a caricature of Jesus and not the real Jesus. It's the Jesus in my head who I want him to be. It, it, it's funny. We had uh, Tim Summerlin come to Vancouver a couple months ago and he he does these disciples in motion workshops and by the way if anyone gets the chance to have tim come come to your church and do those workshops like do it it's like i mean he practically gives it away and it's it's so helpful 
Uh, that's my little plug for, for Tim there, but you know, I, I realized, yeah, I had this moment when he was talking, when I was actually like, I don't know, Tim, like he was talking about Jesus feeling anxiety. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. like I realized I've only given G- I've only given Jesus permission to feel anxiety once. And that was before you went to the cross. <laughs> That's the only time. It's like if you're about to be killed for your faith, then it's okay to wrestle with God and feel anxiety. But he actually pointed out all these other places where he thought, yeah, Jesus probably felt some strong negative emotions. Um, and I realized I'm I'm I, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't like I don't like that. I want my Jesus to look more like um, Captain America, you know, who like pulls a rabbit out of a hat and, you know, and, and saves me and who is, is crowned in heaven. And I, I forget the humanness of Jesus. And yet his humanness is really like the trail of breadcrumbs for, for us mere mortals to follow. I think you, let me just say this real quick. I think you're yeah. nailing something that, that kind of gets into how, the, to how to overcome disillusionment. So one of the things yeah. that I, I'm thinking is that you have people who, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, this idea that people's glory days are in the past yeah. or that, you know, this idea of I'm burned out and I feel disillusioned because what's the point? Yeah. And like you said, this avatar syndrome where it's like, if we just reverse that and we say the glory days, you know, that that's kind of, even when you look in the, when the temple was rebuilt and I've been reading Ezra Nehemiah, mm. this idea of the grief, because it was so, it was a shadow of what it was when they rebuilt the temple. Yeah. And so the elders grieved because <laughs> they knew what it was. They knew what it, what it used to be. And so I think there's this chronic disappointment. You meet people who are just chronically disappointed. And there's this disillusionment of how do I recapture my mojo spiritually? Right, right. Um, let me, let me, let me, let me, let me just kind of throw out a subconscious can, um, hypothesis here. Okay. Because you're, ladies and gentlemen, this is a, I would say, world class researcher. I've got some things I want to do in terms of research, and he would be my primary consultant on, on research. One of the things I want to research is the subconscious connection between zeal and immaturity. In other words, Sometimes people try to muster themselves up to, to, to I'm going to go and I'm going to take on the world or whatever right. I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be zealous again. Well, subconsciously, I also think there's a contradiction that people have wherein they want to be zeal, zealous, but their zeal is kind of associated, like you were talking about with immaturity. Mm-hmm. And so there's two kind of opposing factors. I think working sometimes in people is like, what does that look like after a marriage and a mortgage? Yes. yes. <laughs> right. And, 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 but subconsciously, sometimes there can be these little components down. There's little particles of, yeah, but when I was zealous, kind of like what you were saying, I made a lot of judgments. I made a lot of assumptions. And so how do I now create zeal that's linked with maturity? And so mm-hmm. I just, that, that's something I'm kind of wondering about if there's a connection. That's my diatribe. Right, I love it. With. I love it. Um, but anyway, yeah, just that in terms of the disillusionment, that's kind of what I really wanted to, to talk about just for a moment, the disillusionment. What's something that you kind of think might be a key factor in dealing with that? Yeah, well, there's this idea of transferable skills. And hmm. uh, I think any of us who's been been married, um, I don't know about you, but just to be really honest, I married a fantasy. I thought I knew my wife. I knew very little about my wife when I married her. 
I had this image in my head of who she was. And the funny thing about, uh, you know, not knowing someone, especially someone you really like, is that in the absence of knowing that thing, our brains will naturally put the best possible scenario in that spot, right? And then what happens is you get married and slowly that, that, that mental construct starts to crack and sometimes it shatters. We realize, oh, I married a stranger. Like I, this person I married, she's all kinds of different than I thought she was. Um, and, and that's actually when the decision to love becomes so crucial. It's, and it goes the other way too, because of course they're getting to know who we really are. Cause it's so easy to like front, you know, when you're dating, it's like, I spent every last penny I had on Aaron when we were dating. I mean, no, like, no, <laughs> don't joke. get yourself in trouble, bro. Hey, I just no, wanna, I, I'm kidding. I'm messing with you. No, I, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, um, it's funny on our honeymoon. I remember, um, we had this discussion about bank accounts. We hadn't yet merged our bank accounts and she's like, so like how much, how much money do you have in your bank account? I'm just curious just for planning. And I'm like, oh, I have like $7 in my bank account. And she's like, what? Like, yeah, like I'm, I'm out of money. Like, and that was the first time we talked about it was on our honeymoon because I, and I, I had wined and dined her. I had taken her out to all these fancy restaurants and, and I, you know, in hindsight, I realized I, I portrayed myself in a way that was not actually true. And, and we both did. And, but then what we have is this opportunity now that we know the truth um, to, to love based on knowledge, right? Because it's like zeal without knowledge. So the trick is, and if this is what I think you're getting at is how do you, how do you have zeal in spite of what you know? You know, and I think that's what happens is like, we just know too much. We've just, we, we've heard the stories. We've been in the situations. We've seen the ugly. How do you, how do you keep coming back? How do you renew? Um, and I, I think if, if I, you know, they say advice is autobiography. If I had one piece of advice to give, I, I know Sabbath is being like, Sabbath is the thing right now that everyone's talking about and, and I think Sabbath is crucial because it does mean rest. Um, and rest is not the absence of something, by the way. Like it's rest isn't like the space between appointments in your daytimer. It's like actually something deliberate that needs to be planned, but that, that's its own conversation. I think one of the reasons why having Sabbath is so crucial is that it's actually time to reflect. It's time to just stop. I mean, that's what Sabbath means to stop. You know, it's a time to think. And I think when we're feeling a lot of emotional pain and stress, one of the ways we cope is by dissociating. We don't want to think, you know, we don't, you know, there's a fear that if we let the waves, you know, the calm down to see, so that you can see down to the bottom, that we'll be terrified about what we find down there. You know, um, I remember swimming out to a buoy in the ocean once and for, and I had goggles. It was the first time I ever did it. And I remember, looking at this chain that had muscles growing on it and it, as it sort of spiraled down and down and down probably 200 feet it was terrifying and i swam back as fast as i could it was so scary to look down into the depths and i think it's just so easy for us to be busy and distracted on our phones 
Um, and it's like, yeah, we can, we can blame Facebook. We can blame, you know, the, the phone company, you know, we can blame Apple. Um, but my question is like, what, what thing am I avoiding? There, there might just be, I just might need some time to reflect um, and work some of that stuff out. That might be terrifying. Um, so I think, I think that's why Sabbath matters. Um, and I think for people in ministry, gosh, what, what a hard job. Um, it makes me think of, especially when things are going badly, like it makes me think of David who like, even in the Psalms, if you see he's got enemies all around, people with daggers ready. I think sometimes, you know, social threat is equally, if not more stressful than physical threat. You know, at least with a physical threat, you know, maybe like the, the, the bear comes out of the woods, you know, you either run from the bear or the bear runs from you or you fight the bear, or, you know, something happens, it ends, you complete the stress cycle, right? And then you can go back to not feeling stressed. But social stress is so different because it's, um, it's sort of these ghosts all around. You don't know what people think. You don't know what narratives are being told behind your back. And, uh, and I think we've seen a lot of that. I think we see a lot of gossip and storytelling and, um, you know, character assassination that happens. And we know that that exists and it's very stressful. Um, and I think that's something primal there because, you know, of course, you know, like 5,000 years ago, if you were ostracized from the group, it would usually mean certain death. So it was important to maintain social ties within your group. And that's, a huge part of the job is just maintaining all of this web of relationships. And if you're new to a church, like you're just starting to, you know, lead a church, it's like you don't even know, you don't even know what that pre-existing context looks like, you know. And then there's always like that first person, like there's this, there's this Canadian saying, like always be careful about the person who meets you at the train. And uh, I could have some Canadian go, I've never heard that saying, but it's like, who's the first person to reach out to you when you show up in a city, you know? It's like, either either they've got, um, you know, either they wanna be the first to manage their own reputation or they wanna be the first to tell you what's wrong with the church or, mm. you know, whatever, right? And it's, um, <laughs> I, and I can <laughs> only so say funny. that because I've been that guy, okay? So let me just own that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I think it's just really, it's really stressful. And without that, that margin and that time to reflect, and that time to like, let everything settle down in life. Um, I just don't know how somebody could succeed. And Lord, Lord forbid, actually enjoy their lives. Well, so it's funny you talk about this idea of, of communal, the lack of Sabbath communal uh, in the yeah. communal scale. And uh, I think it's very true that the basic social tissues have been ruptured yeah and to your point like that's a part of 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 recovery uh that like you talk about the stress cycle well that stress cycle is partly about being able to turn to someone and when when jesus went is his greatest time of need like you were saying before he turned to his friends <laughs> mm -hmm. and so that but again if there are some you know just basic assumptions that have been shattered about being able to trust people right right so sabbath is a lack you know, trauma is a lack of Sabbath on the inside, but it's not mm -hmm. just a lack of Sabbath internally or individually, it's lack of Sabbath in terms of community. 
And I think to some degree, you're right on. And, and I guess that's the question is, can we really trust one another? Well, what we know, and, and, and you see this from the research too, is that healthy people risk. Yeah. Our ability to risk. And so when I think about disillusionment, kind mm -hmm. of bringing it all full circle, disillusionment yeah. is, a, I think, is a, a disease that really kind of creeps in and it erodes our ability to risk. And mm -hmm. it erodes that ability to take a chance and then to know that God's got us or to know that we have the internal capacities for, uh, for repair. Mm -hmm. um, or we've got the conflict management skills and, and some of it's will, some of it's skill, right? Some of us, we right. just don't have the skills to do repair at the next level. The point is, is I, I love what you're saying regarding when it comes to being able to turn to people and, and, and if you can't trust people, and, and like you said, with ministers too, life gets really tough. It's very, yeah. it's already lonely being a minister. It's already yeah. lonely being a Christian. It's lonely being a human being. Like there's an inherent mm -hmm. loneliness built into our heart beating, yeah. you know, it, it's just, there's, there's an aspect of, of being alive that there's a loneliness that we, we want to medicate. So I, I kind of like what you're saying and you're, you're, you're bringing the techno, the technology part of it in it too. I think you're absolutely right. I was thinking yesterday with my son, he just kept coming in wanting mm. attention and I, I'd give him attention, but I get right back on my phone or I had a meeting and I had this and that. And I'm like, I can't live like that. I I'm never going to get this time back with him. And I'm going to want influence later in his life. Like you were saying, mm -hmm. I think you have a 10, 13 and 16 year old. The yeah. influence, it gets built before then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's true. So and, yeah. And, yeah. And it's all about the plank in the spec, you know, like mm. that's been our, our parenting philosophy has totally shifted over the last 10 years. Really? I mean, yeah. We used to have this real law and order approach. Um, and uh, you know, like, you know, obey the first time and all this stuff. And some of that stuff is, is important. Um, I don't want to disparage that, but more and more I realize um, it, I, I just need to work on me. Yeah. Even with my own kids, the number one thing I can do is just try to love Jesus. Like me love Jesus, not me lead a devotional with my family yeah. to teach them to love Jesus. You know, and it's funny because my son, he, he freaks me out, but he, uh, I got, I got mad at him the other day about something and he's like, dad, I think you're projecting onto me. And I'm like, this is like the son of a counselor, right? And he's oh, totally right too. That's what's terrifying about it. And, uh, and when I really thought about it, it's like, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm angry because this thing you did reminded me of something I did when I was your age that really hurt me. And, uh, and wow. I'm, I'm really scared that you're going to go down the same road. And uh, so really, I'm not angry. Really, I'm just really, uh, I'm, I'm scared. And, oh, that's hard. And how do you do that when it's like, this, this is the only thing that matters during family time. It's just, we're just on these, right? Like the, this is like, this is like a great gift from God and a tool of Satan at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, like so many things in life, right? And what I, it's funny because I'll, I'll, I've, I've gotten, his my oldest son Noah I've got his screen time locked down and I can see where he goes and what he does and, and his phone and and but what I've realized is I spend way more time on my phone than he does right so I'm a that's humble it's humble <laughs> and what did I lead with you know I I became an atheist because of the hypocrisy I saw in the church in my family you know and oh here we are history repeating itself mm -hmm. you know? and the but the only way I could figure any of that out is because I've 
you know, giving myself a bit of margin. Okay, the pandemic has given me a bit of margin. You know, Jesus via the pandemic has given me the margin to sort of connect some of these dots. So, well, bless you. I I, I want to ask you just briefly in terms of any upcoming announcements. I mean, you're a professor. Yeah. I mean, you you've got people yeah. you supervise. You've got people you teach. You've got research you're doing in the church. You've got a lot of irons in the fire. What 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 do you want to tell us about? Oh, there, there's a lot of stuff going on. You're, you're right. Um, uh, we've been discussing, so I'm part of the Minister's Health Subcommittee, as I know mm -hmm. you are as well now, and which is great. Um, we're, we're talking about a lot of things uh, to really help ministry staff over the next few years kind of sort some of this out. We want to be a resource. Um, I know there's some books in the works. I think I'm going to be co-authoring a book with someone here and um, well, there's a possibility of doing some research around Sabbath as an intervention for, for ministry staff. Um, but uh, I'm also building a, a course. Uh, so I, what I do is I train social workers. I train graduate level social workers to be clinicians. Um, and, uh, and so I do a lot of coaching and training with them around vicarious trauma, secondary traumatic stress, burnout, all that stuff. Um, but I thought, you know, I've been going, I've been on this social work track for a long time. And I think God actually put me into that field so that he could bring me back, um, mm. and really help people of faith. And so I'm, my big risk is I'm making the leap back. And so what I've uh, put together is a, um, a special training for, for your audience. Um, and it's at my website, it's called, um, the, the web address, I wrote it down. It's it's my name, seanstjean.com forward slash Kyle Spears. Okay. So if you go there, um, you can Oh, get that's this. too cool. Wow. I know. Yeah. That's just for you. And it's for your, for your, for your uh, viewers. So, oh man, we're about that. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, because I, so I wrote down like a ton of notes leading up to this. I realized this interview could go like a hundred different ways. Yeah. And, um, you know, there are just a few things that I think might might help some people who yes. are really feeling a lot of emotional pain right now around where they're at in ministry. You know, like this um, this survey we did with all the, all the ministers, it revealed that almost 25% um, of our ministry staff are looking to get out of the ministry. 22% mm. would quit the ministry right now if they had the fi financial means to do so. And so... Um, I just want to do everything I can to keep people in the game, in a, but in a healthy way. Because um, I think that at the end of the day, um, it's okay to enjoy your life. You know, like hard things will come. That's, that's God's job is to give us hard things, hmm. you know. And he does that in a very careful way, in a, in a disciplined way, you know. He disciplines us in a disciplined way. <laughs> and you know, soundbite <laughs> hashtags. Yeah, do people still do it hashtags. Is. I don't know, but um, I think it's okay to actually enjoy your time on Earth before we make it to heaven. You know, um, and I, I, you know, there, in Ecclesiastes it says that we should we should find happiness in all our hands. Have, you know, uh, have to do, and um, so yeah. So that's what I've got, and, and it, people can check it out there and. Uh, but uh, Kyle, yeah, it's been it's been great chatting with you, and thank you thank you for your insight and, and your thoughtful questions. Um, and uh, hopefully, at some point, I can interview you and uh, and maybe uh, you know pick your brain a little bit. Oh, it's done. Uh, it's yeah. done. 
It's the and and I just want our, our listeners to know for a moment. Uh, dude, you have a strong sense of humor. It's kind of cool. I I say at the end of my interview, we all know that we are with you and God is for you. One day, I think it was uh, maybe we were over Zoom. Maybe it was a committee meeting or whatever it was, and you were like. We are with you and God is for you. And I was just like, so when you come onto my channel, I just thought in that moment, this is going to be a comedic moment right. because of that. And, and, I, and I'm going to say it anyway, though. We yeah, are with you, Sean. We are with you. And God is absolutely for you. And mm -hmm. I, I, the reason why I say God is for us is because, you know, I, I think sometimes we don't really believe that. Yeah. That God is for us. Yeah. He is, and he's always been, he's for us. And, and I, yeah. I think it's powerful if you, if you really lunge into it, I think it is powerful, but also Amen. cheesy. <laughs> it's cheesy, but it's cheesy. We say things are cheesy when they actually hit our heartstrings and hmm. we don't, we don't want to savor that emotion we're feeling. So we say, that's cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> Man, you can name things so well. <laughs> well, thank you so much. If you've been with us this entire time, so many of you are. Uh, you guys watch it over and over and I, I guys, seriously, I am so grateful for this time that we get to have. And, and so many of you, um, are supportive that please like share, subscribe, post it on social media. If you find something helpful, uh, the other thing I would say is that, you know, if you want to subscribe, please do. Um, one thing I've realized in the YouTube algorithm is that if people subscribe, but they don't watch, it messes up things in terms of the algorithm and where the, where the video gets pushed. So you actually want people who subscribe to watch. Um, otherwise, it creates a red flag for the YouTube algorithm. Anyway, no, no worries there. I'll see you next time.